SAFM 104 to 107 nationwide. Leading the conversation. The Viewpoint, weekdays, 8 to 10 p.m. on SAFM. On the viewpoint. I have serious news to pass on to everybody. What I'm about to say. Good evening, everybody. Yeah, 11, 10 November. 2020, this is Songa on the viewpoint this evening. Thanks to my brother and colleague Tabiso Mosia with Sport On and the team that he has there. I dare say I have an even better team in Kanyabonani, Lesteho Mangonyane, as well as Brafini, as we love to call him. He's not a happy chappy ever since the 3rd of November last week. I wonder what it is that has happened to him, but nonetheless, we'll say nothing about that. That song that you just heard, Love's in loves in Need of Love Today. That is Stevie Wonder as chosen by our guest this evening, who needs in medical spaces very little, if any, introduction. He's the outgoing president of the Health Professions Council of South Africa. Of course, I'm talking about none other than Dr. Kosi Letlape. Dr. Letlape, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, good evening, Fongazi. Good evening to the listeners. Let's go back in time in history when there were very few ophthalmologists until you decided to break the ceiling. Let's have a story about your journey in medicine, specifically as you became the first African ophthalmologist in this country. In actual fact, you know, there's an interesting story. There was a Dr. Roberto who was the first to train in ophthalmology in the 60s. It's it's Dr. Dr. Francis Roberto. But yes, oh. but because of the challenges of the time, he ended up leaving, going into exile, and ended up as a GP in the UK where he passed on. So I was not the first to train in ophthalmology, but I was the first to qualify. I see, I see. Very well. Must and, have been some uh, heady political days back then. Uh, yes, it, 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 was a, it was not an easy thing to be able to get into that space because that was a discipline that was reserved for other tribes, and we were not allowed into it. Uh, but, uh, you know, by the grace of God and the ancestors being on my shoulder, and uh, those that were around to help me, including the matron at St. John's, Mrs. Sunkwana, and uh, Dr. Dahan, who was the head at St. John's, and the prof that appointed me for the first time, Professor Neville Welsh, I was able to get into St. John's and train Let's talk about the profession itself. First of all, distinguish it from optometry. You are a proper eye surgeon, as ophthalmologists are, which is completely different to optometry. So let's just have a conversation about the profession, perhaps sell it to a student who might be thinking to go that route, the joys that you have been able to derive from being a scientist of ophthalmology. And then we can start talking about some of the issues that continue to plague South Africa's public health care specifically. Basically, as an ophthalmologist, it's one of the specialties in medicine. And in actual fact, the first 
having to specialize in this country was an ophthalmologist. You know, and mm. they were the first to go into private practice at the time. Uh, you go to qualify as a basic doctor. So you go to do your six-year or five-year program, graduate as a medical doctor, MBCHB, Bachelor's of Medicine, Bachelor of Surgery, and then after that you go undergo further training. So you have the six, seven years of medicine, including internship and outside time, mm-hmm. and you'd have, you'd have another four or five years of registered time. So it takes you about 12, 13 years post-metric to become an ophthalmologist, as opposed to optometry, which is a four-year degree, and uh, you don't qualify as an optometrist. So we are medical doctors, and we deal with medical and surgical problems of the eye. We will deal with everything. We will even give you a script for glasses, and you can then go to an optician or an optometrist to fill the script. But we do operations, we deal with medical illnesses, we deal with all sorts of eye problems. Sounds quite intense. And in fact, you went to get your specialist degree, I understand, in Edinburgh, Scotland, as opposed to Johannesburg. Tell us more about that experience when you were in the UK. I think I trained in South Africa, but at that time in the UK, they recognized training in South Africa and they allowed you to sit for their exam. Some interesting thing that uh, someone might write about before, you'd see that in most disciplines, a lot of the Africans got their um senior degrees outside the country. Mm. And most of them were from the UK, whether it's Edinburgh, Glasgow, Scotland, uh, London. And the first person to get their specialist degree in South Africa was uh, Dr. Mediba, who was a brilliant, brilliant mind who became Charles Mediba, who was a surgeon. And then after that, you know, we then uh, took our chances of going to the local college. Remember, there was a lot of gatekeeping that was mm, happening mm, in our environment. Mm. So for my instance, as the first African ophthalmologist, in between the written exam in South Africa and the clinical exam, I was able to go out and sit for the exam in Edinburgh, and fortunately I passed. I needed to take insurance. You know, being the first, and my exam, the college exam was held in Bloemfontein, and given the history of what was happening in the department, I needed to take some form of insurance. I was thoroughly discouraged from going to the UK to write that exam. But it's something that I'm glad I did. And that was probably one of the most stressful exams that I did. Because at the time of my training, we were not allowed to see white patients. So all the specific diseases that are prevalent or are only seen commonly in white patients, I had to deal with them from atlases and textbooks. And we were allowed to come into the Johannesburg Hospital, but we could not touch patients. So even just to look up for the signs, if the patient didn't consent, you can't look into the eyes. So when we went there for teaching rounds, you know, it was look from afar, don't be seen, listen to the messages. So the most terrifying thing was mm. examining a white person for the first time in my exam in Edinburgh. And I will not forget that moment in my life. Tell us about that experience. You know, uh, I got in there, and the patient was white, and you go in there, and you know, uh, because of the uh, lesser pigmentation, the, the eye looks different, but you'd seen it in atlases, et cetera, et cetera. But, but, you know, it was one of those things. You come from South Africa, and you were shielded uh, from white people. It's really, really a terrifying experience coming 
from the social background that we had. You know, you, you could be a protesting student, you could talk about the 76 riots, but when you get into that situation, you become apprehensive. And I had the loveliest of patients. I had examiners that treated me like a human being, and all they saw was a candidate, and they were just going to assess my knowledge. And one of the great experiences about going there was I, I, I enjoyed the anonymity being in a city like Edinburgh or through London when I walk through there, and you're just part of the crowd. You don't stand out. And I'd had the experience of being the lone one out, you know, sitting at conferences and you're the only African. And I can tell you, hilarious experiences of going into ophthalmology conferences and uh, some of my uh, colleagues' partners, their wives would get a cocktail and then order drinks for me. Or being in line for a bride and we being served by an African, and he chases me out of the line because I'm the only African, and he thinks I'm being for sport. So it's it's been an interesting experience. Painful at times, for sure. Excuse me. Painful at times. I mean, I, I, I'm looking at your resume here. You were removed from the multiracial suburb of Sophia Town, and we all know what Sophia Town means in Johannesburg. It's the same thing for District Six in Cape Town. These experiences that you're talking about, the fact that your practice going into it, certainly in those days, was hamstrung by the political aspect of it all. Let's talk about the political Letlape now, the young man who knows all about Steve Biko, who knows all about the 76 uprisings, who sees what's happening in 85 and the turn of the tide, so to speak, all the while whilst trying to carve a name for yourself in a profession that for the longest time and in many respects still is very much gate-kept. I mean, you went to Fort Hare, which is great, of course, but things didn't quite pan out that way that you found yourself in KZN. Can we just talk about your political life and how you were able to navigate between pursuing the politics of the time that were required from people your age and at the same time a career? You know, one of the issues about politics is that uh, I, I was very good in the English language from early on. I was in debate teams throughout junior high school and throughout high school. And because of that, uh, being outspoken, uh, when I was in uh, Form 4, which is probably grade 11 today, I was expelled from Morocco High School for having participated in deliberations that led to a strike at the school. And as one of those that was sifted out, went back to the township in Netherlands, and I wasn't doing well because I got into township life. And my father took me back to Morocco, confronted them, and wondered them why was there no disciplinary case, etc., etc. So I was taken back. So I was attuned to apply it and to issues of struggle uh, from as early as in high school. Mm. I then get to Fort Hare in 1976. I lived the riots by one year. I matriculated in 75. So needless to say, when the riots erupt, Fort Hare gets closed and we get shipped back home. We then have to write our exams in January. And I was doing a pre-med in Fort Hare because I was not admitted to the medical school. We were unfortunate, but at the time that we qualified in 75, the apartheid government had taken a decision to phase out Africans from the University of Natal Black Section. Remember, at the time, Natal was the only province where white people did not have an undergraduate medical school. And it was the only place where 
blacks could study, Africans, colored, and Indians, mm. in terms of how we were described. So, you know, it, 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 it was a blow that we couldn't get in, but I managed to pass my pre-med and be allowed in second year, and I got in there. Now, you arrive at DNB, a blessing to have been nurtured in an environment like that. As you get onto campus, through the SRC, you are given the Black Students Manifesto. Sasu was still alive. It's 1977. Mm, what a time. September that year. Yes. Stephen Bantubigo gets killed. I've never met uh, Stephen Bantubigo, but because that was his alma, alma mater, that's where he's, you know, espoused the black consciousness philosophy. He was a very, very popular figure there. So we went to the funeral. And first went to the funeral in Williamstown, who was the presiding pastor, the very... Archbishop. Emeritus, Archbishop. Mm. Desmond Tutu. We were harassed by police going, out, going down there, stopped multiple times in the bus that we went out there. So I am grounded in the politics of black consciousness. And they taught us that we're not inferior to anybody else. So uh, I take no prisoners in terms of who I am, that I'm a human being. I'm not superior to anybody, but I'm definitely not inferior to anyone. Absolutely. I'm going to listen to the, the last one. the education that we got. And, uh, you know, then the other thing about my career is that I decided I'd want to be a doctor when I was very young. I was around eight or nine, and that's because I saw Dr. Joji Wo in action, attending to a cousin of mine who I think uh, passed on from leukemia. And I saw Dr. Jivo take care of my cousin, who was feverish, had lymphadenopathy, arranged that he be admitted to Barra, and I saw the serenity with which he held himself, and how when my uncle and aunt rushed with my cousin because you have an emergency, all other patients stood back and Dr. Chihuahua attended to him. And I decided from a very young age that I want to be a doctor. My father was a nursing sister and she discouraged me from medicine because of the horrendous working hours and the responsibilities that go with it. But I'd always wanted to be a doctor and I'll always be a medical doctor and a health activist. For sure, activist at activist at heart, a medical practitioner by training, Dr. Jose Letlape, ophthalmologist, health activist, as well as a harm reduction advocate. He needs very little introduction, as I've said, in medical spaces in this country and in many respects in political circles. Let's have a conversation with him very shortly before he takes over at half past with a guest of his own that he will soon introduce to us. Johannesburg, 714-2006. Jose Letlape, ophthalmologist, health activist, harm reduction advocate, and quite a pain at times, even to the modern dispensation of governors when you talk about HIV and AIDS he was one of the first and this is something I'm quoting from Mr. Mark Haywood of section 27 formally this is what he says of Dr. Jose Letlape he was one of very few black intellectuals prepared to lend his weight to the cause of antiretroviral treatment at a time when it was suggested the treatment was in some way a foreign and unpatriotic act think of the partnerships he would have had then with Mr. Mandela who was forced to come out of retirement because the 99 to 2004 and 2004 to 2008 September administration, just for the most part, would hear none of it. Let's go to the Free State. William, good evening. 
evening as strong as a good evening, uh, doctor. Yeah, good, uh, good evening. How are you, sir? Y- yes, I'm all right. Okay, doctor. Doctor, now that you were, were you full-time there at uh, Health Professional Council, or were you still practicing? Uh, no, I was Hello? not full-time. I was just an elected person, uh, and I was still running my Oh, private. so you continue, you continue to work as a, in the private practice. William, please ask a question. All right, my, yes, my question is that uh, uh, there was a GP in, 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 in the Catalan home that used to send to you when you were still at Florence. still remember when you were working at Florence? Yes. At Florence, yes. There was a GP there that used to send me. I, I used to send a lot and lot of my patients to you, say. I'm but I would like to can my continue name. continue sending them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, now that right, I'm, I'm retired now, I'm in the free state now, I'm no more practicing. But thank you very much for te- being having time to me all those years. I, I just thank want to you, congratulate thank you very you much for, you. for sending people thank our you. way thank so that you. we can assist. Fantastic. Lovely bit of bromance there between Dr. Josile Tlape and William, who's also in the medical field, retired in the free state. Let's talk about the democratic era. You have had your views, and some of which are not always popular in political circles. Nonetheless, let's get into them. I mean, I understand that, and this is a quotation, you can't always trust what you read, but let's have a conversation in relation to your views of pre-1994 public health care sector and a private health care sector, in fact, as well, to post-94 health care sectors. What are your thoughts on that? Where have been the misses in this system? Because when we look at some of the outcomes, there surely is a lot to lament. I, I think we were outsmarted by whites in the previous regime in health. Uh, white public health was arguably the best health care system in the world. We even had a point where people that had relatives here would be coming from the UK to come and have their cataract surgery done in the white, in our public health care system, the white side, of course, because these were relatives of white. And when you look at that, when you look at the fact that in 1967, the white public health care system gave the world the first heart transplant in the public health care system, you know how good public health was. When we grew up, you only go when private if you're not really sick. You know, uh, you got diarrhea, you got flu, etc. But people, when they were really sick, they went into the public health care system. I don't know if you might remember, there was a gentleman called Tony Factor who owned mm-hmm. half of downtown Johannesburg. When Tony Factor needed his bypass surgery, his bypass surgery was done in the wild public health care system, not in the private sector. Fast track to now. What you see is that post-76, as things change, the NERDs make a decision to systematically underfund public health care. They make a conscious decision to do so. The medical scheme that which was established in 67, the year that the transplant was done, they then used as a vehicle post the 70s to build the private health care system. Some of you might not remember, but it was unlawful for blacks to belong to Medicaid. Medicaid were meant for white people. 
When I started working, I could not join the public service military because it was only for whites. Dr. Motlana and his colleagues saw the opportunity and they started CISA, which was the first medical aid. And at that time, that was a medical aid for Africans. There were Sanitas and Prosano for Colors and for Indians. So the racial segregation or tribal delineation was immense in healthcare. But I'll give you an example. In 1985, I worked as a senior house officer in the cardiothoracic department at Barra. We had a dedicated theater that used to do open heart surgeries daily for our people. There was a unit at the Johannesburg Hospital. Because of the chronic underfunding, the head of the department of Kingsley at the time, had said that rich people like Tony Factor should pay for their service so that they should have resources to keep the high standards in the public health care system. But the decision has been, take, had been taken to systematically underfund it. As a result, there was a gentleman who started clinic holdings, Bunny Helen, who approached the cardiac unit at the Johannesburg Hospital, offered them excellent facilities at Middle Park, and overnight, Prof. Kinkley and his team left the Johannesburg Hospital to go to Milka, which is one of the best cardiothoracic facilities in the country. Overnight, white patients had no access to, to cardiac care because their whole unit had moved out into private. Let me please Guess interrupt what you. They did. Let me interrupt they you. They promoted the head of cardiothoracic surgery at Barra, Manuel Antunes, to go and head the department in the Johannesburg Hospital. And overnight, the service that we had to black patients collapsed overnight. We'll talk more about That's that. That's what was that. Just part of the evidence of the political decision-making to take a public health care system that worked and to progressively defund it and rebuild it in the private sector. So it became a privatized sector. So what we talk about... Let me interrupt you there, please, Doc. Prof, let me interrupt you. I have to take a call from Walkerville. We've got Modini on the line, and we are running out of time. So Modini, please, if you could contribute, and thanks so much for your indulgence in being so patient. Dr. Letlape is listening. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, I would like to just congratulate Dr. Letlape for all his successes, representing us, that is, uh, with the commitment to the patient. I happened to be his patient in the early 90s. Uh, I injured my eye, and uh, I, I can't remember how did I seek him out, but I found him in this consulting room outside Barra. And uh, he's the one who conducted an operation on me at a private clinic at the foot of Hilbro. And uh, I'm forever grateful for that, Dr. Dikate. Keep it on. Uh, we are proud of you. Uh, th- th- thank you very much. And I hope you, can, you still have full use of your eye. Thank you. Quick question in relation to that. Here is a message that has also come through, and forgive me for the mispronunciation. This is a medical term. Hi, I have nystagmus and have cataracts. Every time I go to the hospital, 
hospital to get the cataract removed. They can't because of the eye movement. This condition wasted my whole adult life not to be able to find employment. I'm depressed because of it. I'm 37 now and haven't achieved anything due to my eye condition. How can the private hospitals help because government hospitals have long waiting periods and private is expensive? I'm a male. Your thoughts in relation to that condition that one of our listeners is listening to is experiencing rather doc i i think uh, i'm saddened by the fact that uh, he could not get uh, joy from the uh, public health care system i'm happy for you to give him my number offline and i can get involved in ensuring that he gets the care that he needs and i'll make an outreach to those in the public sector and we're happy to consult uh, with him in our practice and assist him Excellent. Let's leave it there. So the gentleman who sent that message, please return on your message with your name, your surname, where you stay, and all the relevant details so that when we can pass the details through to our guest, he will be able to make contact with you in as much as we will give you his contact details so offline the two of you can have that conversation. Well, Prof, thanks indeed for your engagements. I could really get deeper into these issues, but you've got issues of your own to engage with a guest of your own. So let's take the short break of which we spoke about immediately after the break the show is yours you know when to give it back